Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Chapter 10, looking at verses 34 through 42 this morning, again, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless now the preaching of your word, uh, both in the preaching and in the receiving of it. Lord, we do pray as we continue to consider the the difficulties that must come our way for us to be faithful to you as your word so teaches, that you would help us yet to be faithful anyway, that we would uh, not have a misguided conception of what it means to follow you, but that we will say that we are following you, having counted the cost truly. Uh, Help us, O Lord, to see this cost, and yet, Lord, even more, help us to see that what we get in return far outweighs anything that we could ever give, O Lord. For, Lord, truly, you have given us such amazing grace that if we were to lose even our very lives, as the Lord Jesus Christ says, even there we will find life, life eternal with you forever. Open our eyes to your glory in this way. We do ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are many things that the Lord Jesus says that can be quite startling. And here, this is clearly one of them, that the Lord Jesus Christ has not come to bring peace. He's not come to bring peace. Now, the reason this would be so startling is because the scriptures always taught and always teach that the Messiah would come to bring peace. You think of things like Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, a clear prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will speak peace to the nations. Micah even says this one will be our peace. He is our peace himself. In the days of the Messiah, we are told in Isaiah chapter 2 that everyone will beat their swords into, into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. And 
They'll do this because there'll be no need anymore for any implement of war, because there will be perfect peace. As Micah says, every man will sit, a man under his own fig tree and under his vine. There'll be no enemies, no one to make them afraid. Uh, God says in Isaiah chapter 27, concerning the last day and the coming of the Messiah, would that I had thorns or briars to battle. Uh, the idea is that God is looking around and there is such perfect peace that there are simply no enemies even to be found for God to fight against on behalf of his people. And this is not even just in the Old Testament. You think of uh, the New Testament as well. Luke chapter 1 is Zechariah is prophesying about what the Lord Jesus Christ will do. He says that through the Messiah, it'll be granted to us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve God without fear. That is, we'll have a peace from all of our enemies. And it's not even just that kind of peace. Uh, Paul says that through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 5, that we have peace with God. So we don't just have peace being delivered from our enemies. We have peace with God himself. Christ promises that he will leave us his peace. He says, my peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. And John chapter 14, we are told then just a couple chapters later that in the midst of all of our difficulties, we can take heart because we know that Christ has overcome the world. And this way we have peace in this way as well. Christ himself calls us, even in the book of Matthew chapter five, to be peacemakers. So we are to be peace. We, we are to have, um, we, we are to make peace with others. Uh, Christ has guaranteed us a peace in a number of ways, prophesied in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We have peace with God, peace with one another, peace being reconciled in Christ, peace in trials, knowing that even as we are away from God, that we are, uh, yet no one can take away from us our inheritance. We have peace in being delivered from our enemies. We have perfect peace coming for us in the last day. And in light of all these things, we can say with the Apostle Paul that we have been given the peace that passes all understanding. In all these ways, Christ has come to grant us peace. And yet, and yet there is a sense of peace that Christ has not come to accomplish. And even in fact, he has come not only just in a neutral way to say, I'm not coming to bring this kind of peace, but he is actually, when, when you think of peace in a particular way, the kind of way, peace that he is thinking about here, he actually sa says that he has come to deny this kind of peace. He has come to bring not peace, but rather a sword. And this, this lack of peace, this sword, this division that is going to be caused by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says it's even, even it's going to mean that families will be set against one another, that those closest to us will actually be divided against us. And this is something that Christ has come to accomplish. Uh, not just that he is going to be neutral, but the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ must mean, must mean that even those closest to us in some cases will in fact be divided against us. Brothers and sisters, there is a kind of peace that Christ has not come to seek. And he also does not come to require you to seek this kind of peace either. There is a kind of peace that Christ has not come to seek. It's the kind of peace that is bought uh, by, through compromise with the world concerning our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a, a peace that is bought uh, at the cost of friendship with the world. And we are told by James that friendship with the world is enmity against God. And when the world speaks of peace, it, and, you know, the, the world speaks of peace. We, we want to have world peace, that sort of thing, or peace with others. Um, we have a kind of sense of peace that we are going for, that we are shooting for, that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. But brothers and sisters, when the world speaks of peace, it, it always means the kind of peace that we are told explicitly in the Bible and in this particular text that we are not to seek, that we are not to seek. 
that Christ has not come to seek it. He's not guaranteed it to us. And we ourselves are not to seek it. We're not to look for it. And even if we do seek it, brothers and sisters, if we seek the kind of peace that the world seeks when it speaks of having peace with others, we will in fact be compromising our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and even denying him. There is a kind of peace that is purchased at the price of friendship with the world. There is a kind of peace that is bought at the price of friendship with the world. And that kind of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ says, he has never, he has never come to accomplish. In that sense, he has come to bring not peace, but rather a sword. And the reason for this is because Christ demands full allegiance to himself, no matter what the cost. He demands it. If there is a peace whose price is friendship with the world and enmity against God, Christ says, I have demanded of you, if you are to follow me, that you are to give me 100% of your heart. Christ will have all or he will have nothing. And because he will have either all or nothing, because he demands that, therefore, there must be division. There must be division because those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ truly can never compromise. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching here. And it's not even, in, in, in many ways, it's not even a really bad news. We are told uh, also that there is a kind of unity that is produced through this. All of those who so think are also united to one another. That's, what the, that's how the Lord Jesus Christ ends in verses 40 through 42. Your, your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ is to be so great that if it causes a division with those closest to you, you are yet to continue following the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are also then to be united to all of those who so think. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do. And this is basically one way to say that what the Lord Jesus Christ demands of you is that you count him as more important than anyone or anything in this life, even your very own life. The closest relationship that you have and even your very life itself, the Lord Jesus Christ is to be greater. Nothing, nothing is to get in the way of your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the conclusion of uh, Christ's second discourse in the book of Matthew. Remember, there are five discourses throughout the book of Matthew that kind of give us kind of a structural grid of the book of Matthew. He has been preaching to the disciples. He's been instructing them what they are to do as they go out to preach the gospel. And he's telling them that they will face uh, persecution. And as we've seen, uh, all of the instructions given to the disciples in the context of the forward movement of the gospel apply to the church now as we also work towards the forward progress of the gospel. What Christ required of the disciples, he requires of us today that we count him as the highest in the world, our highest and first commitment in the world. And anytime there is ever a temptation to compromise your commitment to Christ for the sake of someone or something or your very life, it is a test of your devotion. And Christ demands that you make sure that you choose him in all circumstances. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying today. There is to be nothing, nothing higher than your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Lord. You are to obey him in everything. Now, we'll look at this text under three headings. First in verses 34 to 36, we'll see that Christ causes divisions. That's the, the, the point. He's not come to bring peace, but rather a sword. And secondly, in verses 37 through 39, we have the required devotion to Christ. And the connection between this and Christ causing divisions is that the devotion to Christ, his demand for that devotion is the thing that causes the divisions. So the reason why there, is, why, why there are divisions is because you meet, must be fully devoted to Christ. And then thirdly, we'll look at the blessings for those 
uh, who received Christians well, verses 40 through 42. And this would be um, the unity that is, in fact, uh, achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ. All those who are so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ end up uh, being divided from others, and yet they are united to one another, as we'll see. And there is a reward even uh, for those who are so united. There's a, a requirement that all of those who confess Christ, that they be willing to be divided from others, and a requirement that they also be willing to be united to their brothers and sisters who think the same way. And so we'll consider then, brothers and sisters, verses 34 through 36, the causes of divisions. Now, again, this is to be emphasized, this statement here in verse 34, do not think I've come, I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This, of course, in light of uh, all the other texts of scripture that I mentioned, does not mean that Christ has come to not to bring peace at all. He certainly has come to bring peace, the most definitive uh, measure of peace, really the only kind of true peace that you can ever attain in this life. Uh, but he has not come to bring peace of a certain kind. That is, that is the point of what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. And again, notice, it is not that he is neutral with regard to this. He, what he's saying is, my coming will bring these divisions, and I have come so that those divisions would in fact happen. Those divisions would in fact happen. Now, uh, it's important for us to keep in mind and to, and to define very clearly uh, what this kind of peace is that Christ is saying that he has not come to bring. Because, again, there are many ways in which Christ has come to bring peace. And the, the kind of peace is any peace purchased at the expense of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any peace that is purchased at the expense of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ is not a peace that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, has come to bring about. Christ is not advocating for divisiveness for the sake of divisiveness. He's not advocating that we separate ourselves from others needlessly. Uh, this is really an indirect kind of division that's going to come. Your devotedness to Christ will mean others will be divided against you and that you will have to make decisions that will divide yourself against others. You're not trying to be divisive. The idea is you are trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and that must bring a certain kind of divisions. Uh, and, and even we see this with um, in, in the New Testament and other places as well. You think of uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians, clearly one of the things that the, that the church in Corinth was, was uh, struggling with and sinning in was their divisions one against another. And yet, Paul, even in Corinth, is saying that there are some divisions that are necessary, and not only necessary, but good. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. There must be divisions. If, if there is a great decline in the church, then there must be divisions. Because those who are faithful will be divided against those who are not faithful. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And so therefore, some of the divisions in, in, in the Corinthian church are actually quite justified. And there is a party that is wrong. And there is a party that is right. And sometimes the party that is right could be the party that's dividing. Because they are the ones who are remaining faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the, the church fathers of the 4th century uh, put it this way. He says, because... Uh, this is, this more than anything is peace. So here's the, the true kind of peace he is saying. When the disease is removed, the true kind of peace is when, the, is when the disease is removed. This is peace when the cancer is cut away. Only with such radical surgery is it possible for heaven to be united to earth. Thus, it was also in the case of the Tower of Babel. Their evil peace was ended by their good discord. 
Now think about that. Their evil peace was ended by their good discord. There was a wickedness in the city, and they were united in their wickedness. And God, in judging them, confused their languages, but that actually brought about a good. They could no longer be united in their evil against the Lord. And therefore, as uh, Chris Austin says, peace therefore was accomplished. It was accomplished uh, through division. Now, there are other examples of this. And if, if you want to know how does this apply to our own day, what are the kinds of ways in which the world seeks this kind of peace, which is actually... Um, not acting in accordance with the gospel, but actually a, a, uh, a forsaking of the gospel and a forsaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really what happened with all liberal denominations in the 20th century, uh, where they sought a peace at the expense of doctrinal fidelity. And they basically said, you know, what we have that unites us is uh, clearly more important than what, the, than what divides us. And therefore, you know, all these different things, you know, uh, what you believe about this or what you believe about this, it doesn't really matter. We can just kind of take the lowest common denominator and all come together. The problem is that those, those other things were basically the gospel. And they were basically saying, you know, like you just give up all of your distinctives, become basically just liberal and just, you know, living a, a generally moral life. And if you do that, then we can all be united. But that is exactly the kind of unity that the Lord Jesus Christ says that he has never come to bring. He has come to set in this way a church against a church. If a church is not willing to be faithful to the scriptures, then another church that opposes that church is not wrong. And, and, and even the division that comes from it is not, in fact, uh, even sinful. There is, in some ways, a requirement for this. Uh, this is also uh, seen today, you know, even more recently than the, than the 20th century in the, the culture and the world. We're told over and over again that we need to seek inclusion and seek peace with others. This kind of inclusion or peace by way of inclusion, uh, is exactly the kind of thing that the Lord Jesus Christ says is not what he has come to do. This is exactly the kind of peace that the world always seeks that is, in fact, quite sinful. It's the kind of peace that requires us to account things that are sinful as being good, to, to overturn what the scriptures say about these things. And they're saying, you know, you know, just let people live. Just let them do whatever they want. They're not bothering you. You don't have to bother them. Just admit that it's not a big deal. And we will all be at peace together. But brothers and sisters, that is peace bought at the price of compromise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ has said, I demand all of your devotion. And therefore, there will be these kinds of divisions. We are not to give in, even in the slightest, to this kind of inclusion or peace that the world speaks about. This is also... Um, the kind of peace that many are speaking about when they talk about world peace, uh, world peace, uh, which became very popular in the 20th century. You know, the idea of, of um, you know, if we just do these or th this or that thing, you know, we can all live at peace one, one, one with another. Uh, the problem is it's very naive with regard to human nature. Humans are always sinners. There are there and will always be many who have ideologies that are sinful, that affect an entire nation. And in those situations, it can often be very right for a nation to go to war against some kind of evil. There is such a thing as a just war. And uh, we are not to, to say, you know, we're just going to overlook this evil thing for the sake of attaining to some kind of world peace. That is not the kind of peace that the Lord uh, Jesus Christ is speaking about. Uh, in work, in your work, um, one of the ways in which this is probably being shown now is, again, the inclusion sorts of, of things. Um, that's in the culture. It's infected probably uh, uh, most, if not all, uh, workplaces at this point. 
And again, these are the kinds of things that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. We are not to compromise. It's the kind of peace that does not, is not actually faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to that kind of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ has actually come to bring a sword. He has come to bring a sword. He's come positively to divide. And the same can even be true in families. If a parent sees a child become a Christian and the parent opposes Christianity in some way, the demand of Christ on the child is to choose to obey Christ rather than the parent whenever there is contradiction. Now, Christ also commands all children to be subject to their parents. So um, th there is a sense in which all children must be subject to their parents who are unbelievers in that way. But anytime there's a contradiction, Christ demands that the first allegiance be given to him. He demands it. And the same is true the opposite way as well. You have a parent who comes to faith and a child who opposes uh, the Christianity in some way. Christ says, I have come to set a father against his children, a father against his son, a mother against her daughter. Uh, the parent is to choose Christ first. He is to choose Christ before uh, anything else uh, because Christ demands our full allegiance. So this, this is, brothers and sisters, the kind of peace that the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about. He has come to set, as it says, a father against a father, a daughter against her mother, and even in the conclusion, and the enemies of a person will be the members of his own household. Now, when he says this in verses 35 and 36, this is a quotation taken from Micah chapter 7. And there, Micah is prophesying about, about the divisions that will occur uh, right before the restoration at the coming of, with, the, uh, with the coming of the Messiah. And Christ is saying, uh, not only will it be the case that these things will happen because of my coming or in the days of my coming, he's saying that they will happen because of my coming. Uh, not just that they will be present when the Messiah comes, which is true, but Christ is even going further and saying, my coming will cause these divisions. And notice again, even those who are absolutely closest to you, that's the reason for the language of fathers and, and sons, mothers and daughters. The idea is that this level of division will happen in the area of life that you expect the absolute most unity. And if that's the case, then it can happen in any area of life. That's, that's, that's the idea, an argument from the, the, the greater to the lesser. If it can even happen in the family, then it will certainly happen in the culture. It will certainly happen in work and all these other places. Uh, and, and notice then, your very own family. Now, this is especially significant in light of the culture of the day. We live in a time of uh, individualism. You know, we think of American individualism. We have family ties, but, um, you know, in, in the sins that we, we go about in our own daily lives, uh, very often we'll see children estranged from their parents and vice versa. Uh, parents or children especially will want to think of themselves as being separate from their parents. There's an individualistic mindset that comes today. And, uh, and yet, even we understand that a division caused by Christ against our own family is significant. How much more do you think it would have been startling for those to hear in Christ's day where they don't have this kind of individualistic mindset, where the family is really the unit of society, and they really did believe that, they really did practice that, that even in that society, Christ says, I will come to divide families. I will come to divide the most basic fundamental unit of society that is the, supposed to be the, the highest form of unity in the world, your blood relatives. I will set those against one another. That's the idea. Think of those who are absolutely closest to you. These may turn against you because of me. And if they do, you are to be ready. 
you are to be ready to remain faithful to Christ. And this is because, as I said in verses 37 through 39, the Lord Jesus Christ requires absolute devotion. Why is this? Why is it the case that these divisions will come? The answer is Christ requires this kind of devotion. Now, verses 37 through 39 are delineated by a threefold uh, statement where Christ says that a certain person who does a certain thing is not worthy of me. Three times, is not worthy of me. That's the idea. If, if there is something or anyone that you are devoted to above the Lord Jesus Christ, then this means that that person is not worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way that Christ shows the kind of devotion that he himself demands. And these come really in two, in two different forms. Verse 37 there are examples given with regard to uh, our family, and there are two, the father and the mother, uh, the father and mother uh, with the son and the daughter, respectively. And then in verse 38 and 39, the example is with regard to our very lives. So those closest to us and those, and even our very lives themselves. The idea then behind, behind verse 37 is, again, the, the true devotion the absolute devotion that Christ demands has the potential to set a parent and a child at odds one with another. And the reason is because Christ will demand such exclusive devotion that if you say that a father or a mother is more valuable than Christ, then Christ declares to you that you are not worthy of him. You are not worthy of him. Christ will have everything or he will have nothing. That's, that's what Christ is saying. I demand everything. If there is anyone that you count as more valuable than me, then I do not count you as being worthy of me. You are to have the Lord Jesus Christ as the absolute highest uh, obligation, devotion, object of your love in this very life. And therefore, if a parent or a child makes a Christian choose between him or her and Christ, the Christian must always be ready to choose Christ. I, I, I want to be worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ in this sense. And so I'm going to choose in all things the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is ever a situation where you are being called upon to choose between Christ and a parent or a child, then what Christ is saying here is that this is your test of your devotion. Are you really worthy of me? And do you really love me more than these? As he asked the apostle Peter, do you really love me this much? And the answer we are to give is yes. We do love him in that way. That's what Christ demands of us. Now, this even goes beyond our closest relationships. Christ then says in verses 38 and 39 that our devotion is to include even our very lives themselves. We are to count the Lord Jesus Christ as more than all of, uh, than even the, the preservation of our very life. It's, this is why in this context, uh, Christ says, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and come after me is not worthy of me. Now, here we have a little foretaste, a little foreshadowing of the way in which Christ is going to die. Uh, this has been very indirectly spoken up to this point. It becomes very, very clear after uh, the confession of Peter in chapter 16. To this point, there's just been little, uh, very indirectly ways in which Christ has foreshadowed the way in which he's going to die. Uh, the point of this first part of the book of Matthew is to lead you to the confession that Jesus is the son of God, uh, the, the, the son of the living God and the Christ. And yet here, there is this requirement that you must pick up your cross and you must follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be willing to give the ultimate, pay the ultimate price for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
even as he says this, uh, it's not the case that you will give something that is more valuable than what you yourself will receive. And so what Christ says in verse 39, it's not, the, it's not the case that you could give even anything and not be even far the more, all the more richly rewarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says in verse 39, if you give up your life for the sake of the gospel, then you'll actually find your life. But if you try to preserve your life, then you'll actually lose your life. And so actually, um, Anything that you could possibly think of giving up for the Lord Jesus Christ, any kind of divisions that may come your way, even if you give up your very life, what Christ is saying is, not only are you to have me as your highest object of devotion, but also to do so is the thing that will lead to the most blessing. If you deny it and you have a lower object of, of devotion, you will also have a lower object of blessing such, such to, uh, to such a degree that you will actually lose your life. You will lose your life and you will not have it uh, on the last day. And so actually, not only is it the case that there is that we ought to give up our lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ because of his greatness, but even from just a strictly understanding the, the blessings that are being offered versus the kind of curse that will come if you don't, the kind of, if you just weigh the cost versus the benefit, the wisest decision always would be to give up everything for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he's saying. There will be the greatest blessings that you can attain come from giving up your life for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you give up for Christ, he will much more richly reward you in if you are faithful to him. And it is those who have an eye towards the heavenly reward who are able to set Christ as their highest object of devotion in this life. The world may offer you this kind of temporary peace that's false, it won't give you any peace in your heart at all, it leads to all kinds of compromise. That's the best they can do. Uh, Christ offers you peace in eternity with God. And that is a blessing that will far exceed anything that the world can in fact offer you. And so we are to be devoted to Christ in everything. And then even further, it's not only the case that this leads to great blessings, and it's not only the case that, that there will be divisions because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of verses 40 through 42 is to say that there will also be great unity with others who think this way. There will be others who are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, who set him as the highest object of their devotion. And they will be divided from some, like maybe their families or maybe their friends or, or maybe from their, their, their work. They may lose their reputation, this or that. But there will always be many people who do that. And all of those will receive great blessings in being united one to another. So as you are separated from the world, you are also drawn into a unity with God's people. And this is because there is this principle that the Lord Jesus Christ gives in verse 40. And the way in which verses 40 through 42 work out is the principles given in 40 and then the, the, the specific examples in 41 and 42. The principle is uh, anyone that, that comes in the name of Christ, if you receive that person as such, then you are not just receiving that person, but you are receiving the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And therefore, if you have Christ as your highest object of devotion, you will be separated naturally from those who oppose Christ, but also those who love Christ, there will be a natural unity that you have with them. Because you think, you know, well, certainly if Christ is the highest object of my devotion and I love him above everything else, and if Christ says, if I receive this person who comes in his name, then I've received him, well, I certainly want to receive him. Therefore, I'm going to receive this person who comes in his name. And what Christ is saying, even here, there is a great reward for those who do so. If you receive a person who comes in the name of Christ, you received Christ. If you receive Christ, you have received the one who sent Christ. And if this is the case, you will by no means lose your reward. 
Now, there, there are two particular examples that the Lord Jesus Christ gives here. He speaks of, uh, in, in some ways, he gives three. Two of them are, are parallel. Uh, in verse 41, he speaks of receiving the prophet and then also receiving the righteous man. And the idea here is that if you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, then you will receive a prophet's reward. If you receive the righteous man in the name of the righteous man, then you will receive a righteous person's reward. The idea is, is that whatever you do to one who comes in the name of Christ, Christ counts it as being done to himself. This is the reason why in Matthew 25, when Christ is talking about the final judgment, he says, whatever you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done to me. Not the poor in general. It's not the point of Matthew 25. Whatever you've done to Christians who call upon my name, who are abused in this world, whom the world hates and overlooks, if you look at them and understand this is actually Christ and you receive them well, know that Christ will give you reward as if you've done it to Christ. That's the idea. Whatever you've done to any Christian, because he's a Christian, Christ says, they bear my name, you've treated him well, therefore you have treated me well. And your reward will, be, will correlate to having done it to the Lord Jesus Christ. The same is true oppositely as well. This is the reason why when Paul is converted on the, the road uh, to Damascus and uh, he appears, uh, Christ appears to him and, um, and Christ says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting you? Uh, but, 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 Saul, uh, but, but Christ says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. He's persecuting Christ, not because he saw Christ was persecuting him. He, he didn't. But it was because he was persecuting the church. And if you persecute the church, you are persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do to a Christian, Christ counts it as being done to himself. If therefore you love Christ, you must also treat all Christians with absolute dignity and respect. And this is the reason, brothers and sisters, why it's so important. It's so important for you to be at church. And even more than just being at church, it's the reason why it's so important for you to be involved in the church, that, that your closest relationships are with those in the church, that you truly do try to bear burdens with one another, that you, you make yourself known to the church. You know, it can be, uh, especially in today's world, it can be very easy to just come to church and, and leave and know nobody, uh, that sort of thing. But really what, what Christ is, is saying here is that you are bound together. Uh, to these other people because they, like you, have Christ as their highest object of devotion. And the way you treat them is also the way in which you treat Christ. And therefore, we, we are bound together in the fellowship of the saints. And this is why it is, is, why it is in fact, so important. And you, you think of uh, an example that I mentioned a, f a few weeks ago, the Shunammite in 2 Kings chapter 4. This is exactly her way of thinking. Uh, she sees a prophet so think about the first example in, in verse 41, the prophet Elijah, he comes by and she says to her husband, you know, this, this prophet, he's a man of God. He often comes to this town. Let's make a room for him so that whenever he comes by, we can serve him. And the idea here is what Christ is saying is she will receive a prophet's reward. The reason why she received Elijah is because he came in the name of God. And brothers and sisters, so will it be as you receive all of those who also come in the name of God whether it be a prophet in the sense of uh, someone who is formally set apart for the ministry of the word, someone like, like me, or whether it be just any righteous person, any person who uh, truly confesses the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way in which you treat other Christians is the way in which you treat the Lord Jesus Christ. If you cannot love other Christians, it means you cannot love the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you receive a righteous person, because you love that person and you love that person because you love Christ, 
then you will receive the reward of a righteous person. Brothers and sisters, do you think this way? Do, do you go out of your way to help a Christian because he is a Christian? Do you uh, strive to, to, to uh, make all of your gifts known to others in the sense of using your gifts for the sake of the edification of others? You think of, of, of any spiritual gift you've been given. All of it has been given to you for the sake of others. It's been given to you for the sake of your service to your brothers and sisters. All of us need all of the gifts of, of others. Uh, we all need to be encouraged by others. And what Christ is saying is when you use your gifts, your spiritual gifts for the sake of the encouragement and edification of another brother or sister, you have done that to Christ himself. If you withhold it, you are withholding it from Christ himself. That is the principle that the Lord Jesus Christ is putting before us. And even he goes so far as to say in verse 42, he gives quite an extreme example. He says, you know, even if you take one of these little ones overlooked by others and you give him only a cup of cold water because he's a Christian, you will by no means lose, lose your reward. Any act of kindness for any Christian, what Christ is saying is, he will abundantly reward. If you say, you know, this person is thirsty and my Lord has honored this person so much by going to the cross to die for this person, I am going to make sure that he's no longer thirsty. Christ says that will be, be to your blessing on the last day. You acted in kindness to this person because this person was a Christian. What, what better motivation could there be, brothers and sisters, uh, to love other Christians? E even as you think, the, your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will naturally lead to divisions with others. Uh, what a great blessing that Christ has said, you know, in the, this community of believers, you will be united to them. You will, have, you will benefit in their, in their gifts and their blessings. And you will be united and even devoted to one another such that each person will treat the other as if they were treating Christ himself. This is what Christ is saying. This is the great blessing that accrues to you as a Christian as you hold Christ as the highest object of your devotion. And that's really the principle that Christ is saying, the giving here. The thing that unites the two ideas of division and receiving Christians is this, that devotion to Christ is to govern all of your actions. Devotion to Christ is to govern, govern all of your actions, whether towards unity or whether towards division. There is a kind of unity that will be naturally produced. There is a kind of division that will be naturally produced. Division will always come from those who oppose Christ, and unity will always come from those who submit to Christ. And the idea, again, brothers and sisters, in all this is to, to test your devotion. How devoted are you to the Lord Jesus Christ? What you are willing to give up for something is what reveals how much you love that thing. What you're willing to give up for something shows how much you value something. And what Christ is saying is, the value you should have on me should know no limit. Whatever it is, you should be willing to give it up for Christ. Those who are worthy of Christ are those who say, Christ has done so much for me that he is worthy of my very life itself. And if the whole realm of nature were mine, that would be an offering to him that would be far too small. And it also means, brothers and sisters, that all those who come in the name of Christ, because they come in the name of Christ, is to be received as such. Now, your ability to do this is 100% dependent upon your understanding and appreciation of the glory of Christ. 
May it be that God would, in fact, open your eyes to see his glory, that all these things would just make perfect sense. My Savior is the eternal Son of God who became man for my sake, died on a cross that I might be saved, that I might be redeemed from uh, the penalty of sin and death, that I might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of his love. I have beheld his glory. Of course, I'm going to be devoted to him over everything else. And of course, I will receive any person who comes in his name because I love the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that God would so open your eyes that you might bear fruit in keeping with repentance and that you might truly live a life that's pleasing to the God who's called you by his son. Let's pray. Oh, Father. How we do plead with you that you would, in fact, grant us this heart. Lord, how we do um, pray that you would forgive us when we consider our own weakness, all the ways in which we have compromised, in which we have uh, not been willing to undergo the kind of division that we are required to undergo. And also, Lord, the ways in which we have been uh, been divided from our brothers and sisters when we are called to be united to them. Lord, may it be that you would grant to us a true, a true vision of the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would be willing to be separated from the world and united to our brothers and sisters. For Lord, we do ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.